The prayer assigned for this evening for your worship at home, to the best of my research, for probably the last uh, 400, 420 years, we pray this prayer. Eternal God, we commit to your mercy and forgiveness the year now ending, and commend to your blessing and love the times yet to come. In the new year, abide among us with your Holy Spirit, that we may always trust in the saving name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Time sets boundaries for us, doesn't it? And so we gather together on a night like this, and I guess I could describe it as on the night that a year is dying. And if you put it in that context, now your mind is starting to go off to places where you're starting to think about the ultimate boundary. Your ultimate boundary, right? You've made it through this year, and to be perfectly frank in the setting of Psalm 90 this evening, you're one year closer to the grave. And this coming year, if you outlive it, to put it from a different perspective, you will be one year closer to your eternal future. But whether it's this last year or whether it's the year to come or the year to come after that, if the Lord gives you that length of a time of grace, all our hope for all of our years rests upon him who, when he was on the earth, said, before Abraham was, I am. But it is true. The issues of time and eternity are on our minds this evening, which is appropriate in the context of Psalm 90. You've heard it. We're not going to preach a sermon on every last point and every last verse, but Psalm 90 is, to our knowledge, the oldest psalm in the Psalter. And it is the only psalm that we know of that was actually that is attributed to Moses. And as you can guess, or as you heard, you don't have to guess, Moses was focusing a good chunk of that center of that psalm on the topic of death and the judgment, which is judgment, God's judgment on sin. But he also points us to the Lord in the beginning, his eternity, his eternalness, and his mercy at the end. He points us to the Lord who has the power to go beyond death and do something about death and the person bring them beyond death. Now, we heard Psalm 90 this evening. We didn't sing Psalm 90, even it's in abbreviated form. But there was a hymn writer by the name of Isaac Watts, and he wrote the famous hymn that we're actually going to sing during the distribution of the Lord's Supper this evening, entitled, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. And Isaac Watts based that metrical version, that hymn, upon Psalm 90. So let's just take that portion, those portions that I've selected for ourselves this evening, and let's just study them under this theme, O God, our help in ages past, despite our iniquities. 
and do only and solely and totally to his refuge. So the, the Professor Brug slash Pastor Getzinger translation of the first portion of the text that I want to look at, verses 3 and then 7 through 10, sounds like this. Personally, I think it's a little bit more colorful, but that would make it sound like I'm patting myself on the back. So I'm going to pat Professor Brug on the back. You turn man to powder, and you say, Return, sons of Adam. Surely we are consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our guilty deeds before you, our hidden sins in the light of your face. For all our days pass away under your rage. We finish our years like a sigh. As for the days of our years, in them are 70 years, or even by reason of strength, 80 years. Yet the best of them are trouble and sorrow, for they disappear quickly and we fly away. The cause of death is definitely not a design flaw on God's part. Let's get that out there right away, okay, from the get-go. Uh, but nor is the cause of death due to natural weakness or sickness or some sort of human violence. Those last three may be secondary causes, but they are not the primary cause of death. The primary cause of death is God's judgment over and against sin. Now, in case you've never heard it before, God never intended mankind to die. But death became our sentence. And it's not like God just ignored Adam and Eve after he made them and backed up and watched to see what was going to happen. No, he warned Adam. He warned Adam, and Eve was right there in earshot, that there was going to be consequences if there was disobedience. And consequences there were. And the consequence was going to be death. And God told them that right up front. Nevertheless, Adam and Eve thought that they knew better. And you know the rest of the story. Death came into the world. And death came to them. And death came to all of their descendants. And that's why the Apostle Paul could write the wages, the payment for, of sin is death. Sin pays you back with nothing but death. So death is caused... Oh, so, so I, I wanted to switch this around. So normally we say sin caused God's anger and God's anger caused death. But let's flip that order around just a little bit. So hopefully you get maybe a nuanced, new perspective to this. Um, death caused, was caused by God's anger. God's anger was caused by man's sin. Does that not leave you with one clear impression when you put it in that reverse order? Whose fault is death? Even for us, even for we believers, we the pious, sin is so much greater and so much deeper than we can ever perceive or ever understand. We cannot see down to the bottom of sin's abyss. It's just not possible for us. We cannot begin to calculate the, even the smallest percentage of our indebtedness to God 
because of our sin, and not even collectively as a human race, just individually in our own lives. But Moses tries, he tries to convince, convey this, how serious this sin is by the heaping up of terms. He used that word anger, which you can, when you come across that word anger in the Hebrew, you can also translate it in the proper context as nostril. Why? Because when you're angry, your nostrils are flaring. So God is fuming over sin, Moses is saying here. He uses this word wrath. And wrath, when you look it up in a Hebrew dictionary, a Hebrew lexicon, you can also translate it as the word heat. Ooh, that's good. Now make sure you have to use it in the right context. But in this context, God is not only fuming, he is hot under the collar over sin. Moses makes it perfectly clear. And then he uses the word rage. And you look up this rage word in the Hebrew dictionary, and it's going to tell you that it's an overflowing, excessive outburst. God is furious over sin. He's fuming, he's hot under the collar, and he's absolutely going to have a tirade on the individual who's called a sinner. But God, on the other hand, he most thoroughly does perceive and understand the thoroughgoing nature of our sin and our wickedness. He sees how deeply sin is rooted in our hearts. But the real cause of death is hidden to the world. It is unaware that man's sin has brought the world to the situation that it's in. It is unaware that death or sin is what has brought death about. And it is totally oblivious to sin, which is such an insidious enemy that lurks within each and every one of us. Only the pious realize this. By pious, I mean only the believe, only believers understand this and confess this. And they submit to the judgment of God's wrath. Because they know that in his grace and mercy, they have been spared the judgment of God's wrath. All thanks to his son Jesus taking our place. But the world, the world is unaware of this escape plan. I wonder if we could do something about that. Hmm. To many people though, God's wrath against sin seems totally unreasonable and totally excessive. But we don't know if it's over the top. We don't know what his full wrath looks like because we haven't experienced hell. And I'll bet if God set his mind to it, he could make something even more wrathful than hell if he wanted to. But see, the point is, God's wrath against sin is proportionate to the seriousness of sin. It is an, sin is an offense against a limitless and holy God. Sin, therefore, deserves limitless punishment. And for the sinner, there is absolutely no escape, no escape, except by the grace of God, shown to us in his Son, Jesus Christ, who took our place for us. 
Our second section is verses 1, 2, and 4. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or the earth and the world were born, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. For a thousand years in your eyes are like a day, yesterday that has gone by, or like a watch in the night. Watch in the night is four hours. That's it. Moses here in this section is not interested in a philosophical discussion about God's eternity. No, what he's interested in is the practical application of God's eternity. God's eternity is not simply described as the opposite of our mortality. No, it is proclaimed as the answer to our mortality. Since God is immortal and eternal, he can then be the dwelling place for all of his people, for all generations. And what a previously possibly unnoticed by you point and blessing that little eternalness and changelessness of God is that maybe it just, boom, light bulb went on for the first time tonight. For a thousand years in your eyes are like a day tells us that God's eternity is not just endless time. It is independence from time. It is outside of time. As the Apostle Peter penned it, for God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. What does all of this mean? For God, what we call eternity is an everlasting now. He's always there, and he's always the same. You and I change and decay over our 70 or 80 years. God remains unchanged. He's always the same, always constant. Before the earth was created, while the world is spinning right now, and long after this world is gone, God has always been the same, and God will be there. <clears throat> and this God, he is our changeless, our, his, our immortal, our eternal. I always want to be your refuge. I always want to welcome you home. God. Why? Because he sent his one and only son to this world to take your place. But the world is unaware of that. Hmm. I wonder if we could do something about that. Verse 12 says, teach us to measure our days correctly, that we may bring a heart of wisdom. It's been said that nothing is so uncertain as the hour of our death, <clears throat> excuse me, and nothing is so certain as death itself, since we each only have one life, and that life is really short, each of us would be wise if we would use this time that has been given to us to obtain wisdom, but to obtain wisdom that comes from God. And this wisdom that we're talking about that comes from God is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message that says you are a damned sinner with no possible help, chance of escape, except by the grace of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that says God's own son came to this world to take your place, to take your judgment, to take your wrath, 
and his rage against you and his anger against you and give you what? Not just bring you back into eyesight of God, not just to bring you into somewhat of a neutralized ceasefire state with God, no, to give you the forgiveness of your sins and new life and salvation and eternal life. We should make the most of this time that he has given to us. It's called our time of grace because as Moses wrote, our lives disappear quickly. I'm gonna tell you a story that is gonna absolutely set my poor wife on edge. But I was walking home last night and I tend not to cross over over here in front of the old pub I don't cross over at the street. I wait for all the traffic to stop, and I just kind of hoof it through, and I wave to the guy who stopped for me because he's waiting for the red light anyway. And I'm, there's always another lane, so I always look, but there's a car coming out of the university, and he's got his right signal on, and I can see him to motion to let me go. And I did not check the cars coming in the other lane. And I went across. As soon as my back heel hit that curb, a car, I could feel the air from it, whoosh, behind me. I thanked God the next 42 minutes that I was walking home for preserving my life because I probably would have flown 25 feet and I wouldn't be preaching to you right now. Why do I share that story? So that my wife worries every single time I go out walking now? No, I pray not. I share that story because you don't know. You might not have time to prepare for your deaths. It might not be cancer. It might not be liver disease. It might not be a plane crash. It might be just like that from a car. Count your days aright. Make sure your relationship with, and the relationship of your loved ones is in a right, right relationship with our Savior Jesus. Make yourself wise unto salvation. Burrow into the gospel, and you will arrive at Judgment Day with hearts wise unto salvation. And then after this veil of tears is over, or as you want, if you want to call it, this night of suffering is done, you will awaken to a peace and a joy of the new dawn. However many days you have been here, they will not compare to the days of eternity that you will actually finally be able to realize in your resurrected body with your own eyes, as Job wrote about, to realize the beatific vision and to dwell in his refuge forever. Let us then this evening in true faith cling to our Savior the rest of this year and beyond, who suffered for our sins in order that we may, that he may bring us home to his eternal dwelling forevermore. And let this be our continual prayer. And if you need to go home and transcribe it tonight, Psalm 90, Verse 17, may the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands.
because the world is unaware. Amen. Please stand. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, it will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. I direct your eyes now to the top of page six and we'll join together in this response.